We watch horror movies because we get the thrill of being scared all while knowing deep down that it's just a movie and we're in no real danger. But sometimes what we're viewing actually has deep roots in real life. And in the following cases, the true stories are much scarier than the films could ever be. These are four horror movies based on real events. Number four, Borderland, based on Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. Borderland was a 2007 film by Zev Berman that told the tale of a group of American college students escaping to Mexico for spring break. There they run into a bizarre set of characters as one of their friends is kidnapped, tortured, and then mutilated. They soon realize that they're dealing with not just kidnappers, but also a powerful cult and drug gang headed by an American serial killer. The friends struggle to survive as they are hunted and killed off one by one. The movie Borderland is scary, and part of it actually happened in real life. Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo was a Cuban-American serial killer, drug dealer, and religious cult leader who abducted and murdered Mark Kilroy Jr., a University of Texas student when he was visiting Mexico for spring break in 1989. Costanzo was born in Miami, Florida to a Cuban immigrant. At a young age, he dabbled with voodoo and became an apprentice to a local sorcerer who taught him Palo Mayombi, which involves animal sacrifice. His mother's third husband also practiced the religion while dealing drugs, and this became an entryway for him into the world of cocaine and cartels. By the time he was an adult, Adolfo moved to Mexico where he recruited three of his accomplices, started drug dealing and strengthening his occultic practice. He charmed Mexico's elite traffickers with the promise of protection, cleansings, and predictions. Soon his influence grew, but so did his need for better things to sacrifice. On March 13, 1989, he ordered his henchmen that he needed an Anglo to include in his cauldron. The men lured Mark Kilroy from outside a Mexican bar and took him back to their ranch. Mark attempted to escape but was wrestled back into the car. He was kept in a shack on the ranch and told he wouldn't be harmed. After 12 hours, Mark was taken outside where Costanzo took a machete and chopped Kilroy dead in the back of the neck. After a strong investigation, Costanzo's henchmen were caught and they told of the ranch, the abduction, and the murder. When police found Kilroy's body, his legs had been chopped from the knee and his brain and spine were completely missing. What's more, they discovered 15 other mutilated corpses buried on the property. Inside the shack was a blood-soaked floor, various iron kettles where human brains and roasted turtle were found. Other urns had human hair and dried blood mixed with animal parts in them. Different implements for religious and occultic practices were also there. His henchmen said that the humans were used in ritual sacrifices believing it would make it more potent and protect their drug business from the cops. It would take another two weeks before Constanzo would be found. He'd fled to Mexico City with some of his followers and hid out in an apartment. Police were called to the complex on a completely different matter, but when Costanzo saw them, he thought they knew where he was and opened fire. In despair, he soon ordered one of his people to shoot him and another member dead, which they did. And when police made their way in, they found Adolfo's body riddled with bullets. The rest of his followers were then arrested. 
Number three, The Haunting in Connecticut, based on Al and Carmen Snedeker. Directed by Peter Cornwell and released in 2009, The Haunting in Connecticut was released to a moderately successful box office opening. It told the story of the Campbells as they move into a new home to be near a hospital where their cancer-stricken son would be treated. Little did they know the new house once served as a mortuary until its traumatic past starts manifesting in violent ways on the family. While it made for a good scary movie, a real-life family in Connecticut suffered through much the same experiences as the fictional Campbells. Alan Carmen Snedeker moved to Southington, Connecticut to be closer to Yukon Hospital because their son was battling cancer. It was June 30, 1986 when they moved into their new home with their young daughter and three sons. While exploring the house, Carmen found the basement and to her shock discovered old mortician tools including a coffin lift, towing head tags, and even a gurney. Soon they began experiencing unusual things. Their son Philip said he would see a young man with long black hair down to his hips. This man would try and talk to him every day and threaten him. Other times he would just stand still and say his name. It didn't help that Philip and his younger brother Bradley slept in what was once a casket display hall. Philip also complained of hearing voices. When this was brought to doctors' attention, they said he was suffering from schizophrenia. Soon there were noticeable changes in Philip's demeanor. He would play cruel jokes on his younger brother even locking up one sibling in a chest and then claiming to forget it ever even happened. Carmen decided they would send him to live with relatives, and soon after that, the voices stopped. As if in retaliation, the unseen force began manifesting on the rest of the family. It soon turned its attention to a niece who lived in the house with them. One time, Carmen said she came running to her, saying, Aunt Carmen, it's coming, can you feel it? Carmen could see she was terrified and noticed the impression of a hand going up underneath her nightskirt. Soon the parents began experiencing strange happenings. Carmen was nearly suffocated in the bathroom shower, and in one instance the water suddenly turned blood red and smelled of dead bodies. They both also experienced being molested in the night by some unknown entity. The Snedekers couldn't take it anymore and got in touch with priests to have the home exercised. The two initial priests they contacted visited the home but got so scared they left. They also contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren as well as John Zaffis to assess and investigate the house. The Warrens said the home was indeed plagued by demons and that the workers there were guilty of necrophilia, which is one reason for the strong presence. Carmen said that a third exorcism was performed and the priest was able to rid the home of any evil that once lurked there. Today, the Connecticut home still stands, and the current owners have not reported any unusual incidents since. Number 2. The Entity, based on Doris Bither While Poltergeist was enjoying box office success, another lesser-known movie was released at the same time that dealt with a similar theme. Starring award-winning actor Barbara Hershey, the film was called The Entity. It told the story of a young mother named Carla Morin, whose life was changed after being repeatedly attacked by unseen forces in her home. 
In real life, the story of Carla was inspired from the true story of Doris Bither. Her tale also inspired the popular book by Frank De Felita in 1978 titled The Entity, which was in turn turned into the movie. Doris had a young daughter and three sons living with her in Culver City. Soon after they moved in, an elderly lady knocked on her door and told her to leave the house saying she used to live there as a little girl and that there was something evil within. While she was shocked at the warning, she did not leave. According to her son, Brian Harris, his mother also dabbled with the occult when she was younger. Recounting the events, he said that it was a horrible place to live. They believed there were several entities in the home and the children would be pushed, bitten, and scratched on several occasions. Doris would receive the brunt of the attacks. She was raped several times, even with her own children witnessing it. And in one instance, her eldest son tried to stop it from happening, and he was thrown against the wall. These apparitions would manifest as foggy spectral beings, but their facial features would be indistinct. Doris said there were three entities that would attack her, two little ones and one very big one. By chance, Doris overheard two men talking about the supernatural inside a bookstore one day and told them that her house was haunted. Though they were skeptical, parapsychologists Dr. Barry Taff and Kerry Gaynor agreed to take a look. For two months, the UCLA researchers were barraged with various poltergeist activity. The lights would flicker on and off, various orbs would be caught on film, and at one point while Doris was trying to coerce the entities to appear while the investigators were around, everyone actually saw strong poltergeist activity, followed by a green mist that appeared to take the shape of a large male. While the attacks on Doris subsided, they never fully stopped even after they moved to different houses in different states. As for the Culver City home where the attacks originated, no other paranormal activity has been reported there since. Number 1. The Girl Next Door, based on Sylvia Likens. Based off Jack Ketchum's 1989 book, The Girl Next Door, the movie of the same name focuses on the story of a girl named Meg and her sister Susan Laughlin. When their parents died, the sisters were sent to live with their Aunt Ruth and her three sons, Willie, Ralphie, and Donnie. But it was here when her nightmares would begin. Meg was tortured, raped, beaten, and mutilated by her aunt and her sons. A neighbor named David tried to help her escape, but to no avail. People who have seen the movie both praise it and hate it. The graphic depiction of the crimes and the brutality doled out on Meg is difficult to take. Yet what's even more horrifying is that the story is actually a fictionalized account of a true story that happened to a girl named Sylvia Likens. Unlike Meg, Sylvia had no David who took pity on her. Also unlike her, it was a complete stranger, a neighbor caregiver that tortured her along with the neighbor's own children and other neighborhood kids. Sylvia and Jenny's parents were carnival workers who left the two girls in the care of a neighbor, Gertrude Banaszewski, paying her $20 a week. The first week went without incident, but when the second week came and the $20 was delayed, Gertrude took the girls down to the basement and beat them up. The next day, the check arrived, but it was too late. Gertrude had realized the power she had over the girls, and soon, things escalated. 
It started with accusing Sylvia of stealing candy. Then she accused her of being pregnant and promiscuous. After that, she went as far as saying Sylvia was a prostitute. Sometimes Gertrude would beat her up for no reason. The girls would be given scalding hot baths, be burned with cigarettes and other utensils, and starved for days. Gertrude and her son John would also force her to eat her own feces and drink her urine. For some reason, Sylvia got the worst of it, and it wasn't just Gertrude who tortured her. She encouraged her own kids along with neighborhood children to also treat Sylvia horribly. The tortured sisters tried reaching out for help, including writing a letter to their older sister Diana. Diana initially dismissed it, thinking the girls were just being punished. Later on, she went and visited the house to check on them, and was told that Sylvia had run away. Diana told social services, but they did nothing to help. At some point, Gertrude started carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, on Sylvia's abdomen using a hot needle. When she couldn't finish it, she tasked a neighborhood kid and her daughter to finish the job. She then had Sylvia write a letter stating she had run away. Gertrude's plan was to leave her in the woods alone until she died of starvation. By October, Sylvia found out about her plan of dumping her in the forest and tried to escape but in her weak condition couldn't make it out of the door. She was then dragged back to the basement, beaten and tortured again. The next day, Sylvia died from a brain hemorrhage, malnutrition, and shock when she was just 16 years old. Gertrude called the police and handed them the letter she had Sylvia write before, stating that she had run off with some boys. However, Jenny approached the officers and said, Get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. With her testimony and them finding Sylvia's body eventually, Gertrude, her kids Paula, Stephanie, and John, along with neighborhood kids Richie Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, were all arrested and charged with manslaughter. Gertrude was sentenced to life in prison, both in the initial and retrial. However, she was granted parole and released from jail after only serving 14 years. She moved to Iowa under the name Nadine Van Fossen and lived her life quietly until she died in 1990. Her daughter Paula and son John, along with Coy and Richard, also received sentences ranging from 2 to 21 years. The rest of the charges were dropped on Stephanie and the other neighborhood kids for their age and the testimony they provided in court. So there were four horror movies based on real events. It's one thing to find horror movies entertaining, but when you realize that much of what you've seen or are watching could be partly true, the term entertainment just takes on a sinister meaning. If you like this video, then please subscribe to our channel, and every Sunday we'll bring you a new Scary Mysteries video to check out. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.